One of the core lessons that I learned is that product market fit, it's not like you've achieved it and boom, you have it forever. The public still thought we were a darling of Silicon Valley. Investors still thought we were hugely successful and getting to the point where I could like remove my ego from the decision and start to see that, hey, I don't think this business is going to be successful. Welcome to Speak Like a CEO. Today, Oliver and Lena talk to Neeraj Berry, entrepreneur named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, co-founder of Sprig, a food delivery startup that scaled to 1,200 employees in a very short time. Neeraj tells us the story of how he shut down his thriving business after only four years, even though he had a two-year financial runway left. Why did he do this and what did he learn? How did he approach communication and what is he doing in Berlin now? Hi, and welcome to another episode of Speak Like a Seer. My name is Lena Coulson, and I'm here with Oliver Alst. Hi, Lena. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Neeraj Barry. He's a tech entrepreneur and investor from San Francisco. He recently co-founded Sprig, a food delivery startup that scaled up to more than 1,200 employees and raised almost $60 million from top VCs. But now he's here in Berlin, and we really look forward to talking to him. Hi, Neeraj. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Lena. So... Maybe talk us through your story a little bit, because I know you were in San Francisco and now you're here in Berlin. Maybe just give us a quick lowdown of how you ended up here. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the Bay Area in California and spent most of the beginning part of my career kind of bouncing around San Francisco, New York and L.A. Um, I went to school at UCLA um, and my first job was as an investment banker in New York learned kind of the ins and outs of finance and realized that I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. So I moved back to California and started a series of technology companies. Um, the first one was a uh, subscription commerce business that was based in LA. We had a series of uh, celebrity co-founders who started the business with us and, and helped us curate products that we would sell and, and ship to our customers. That was a lot of fun. It was a, my kind of first foray into entrepreneurship, but I, I never really wanted to stay in commerce. I wanted to do something um, that I was a bit more passionate about. Kind of growing up, food had been a really central passion of mine, and I wanted to, to create an easier way for people to solve their daily food challenges. And so I started a company called Sprig, which we designed to be the easiest way for people to eat healthy food, to eat well. And the service was an app on your on your cell phone that you would open it up and every day there would be a brand new menu of kind of healthy dishes using organic ingredients that we were preparing ourselves. Uh, we gave full transparency into our supply chain. So we told you the local farms that all the ingredients came from. We told you all of the nutritional information. And you could just tap twice on your phone and, and a hot, healthy meal would show up at your doorstep in 20 minutes. So from a customer experience perspective, it was very simple um, and frictionless. And um, that, was, that was quite intentional. From an operational standpoint, it required us to build quite a lot of infrastructure and technology to power the end-to-end the -end value chain. And so we were building quite a lot of technology to power our kitchens, to power our deliveries, and to make it as seamless an experience as possible. As, as Oliver mentioned, we raised about 60 million. We grew to 1,200 employees. We delivered millions of meals, all kind of with an average delivery time of 18 minutes. Um, and the business uh, grew really big. At, at one point, we were the largest purchaser of organic produce in all of California. Over time, the we lost um, kind of our core product market fit with our customers. And so the business stopped resonating as much. And in, in 2017, I was looking at the business, realized that 
we had a growing business that was that was you know eking out a profit but wouldn't grow to the to the value that uh, was required from from a business that raised so much capital and so we had about two years of financial runway left so we had almost double digit millions left in, in money and, and I decided to shut the business down and proactively um, return the money uh, spent a couple of months finding jobs for our employees and then my wife and I were looking for a new adventure and we thought we would come to Europe for a year so kind of by chance we had never been to Berlin but we'd heard great things and and uh, we we decided to move to Berlin and that's where I've been for about coming up on three years now. What year was this that you were kind of really up and involved in Sprig? Because this kind of sounds like a prelude to all of the food delivery services that really took over the world in recent times. Yeah, exactly. We were kind of at the forefront of this recent wave. We started the company in 2013 and shut it down in 2017. It's really interesting what you said, that you had product market fit, which, which you know, it seems to be self-evident. But then you said you, you lost it a little bit. What, what happened that triggered the change? Yeah, that's a great question, Oliver. You know, when, when I reflect on, on the experience, one of my key learnings is that product market fit is not a static milestone that startups can achieve and, and they kind of hang on to forever and they don't have to worry about it. Um, but it's actually kind of a, a, a steady state that, that either you're in or you're not. And if you examine the phrase close more closely, um, there's two variables at play. There's the product and your market. And both of these things are living and breathing and evolve over time. Um, and so two things changed. One had to deal with the market and one had to deal with the product. So first is over time, the market fundamentally changed. When we were starting Sprig, one of our core um, realizations was that restaurants that you could traditionally order food from um, were not you know, we're not serving food that you could, you should be eating on a daily basis. It was often food that was, had a ton of added um, sugar or oil or grease or things like that, or, you know, things that, that made them relatively unhealthy. Um, and so that's one of the core reasons we decided to prepare the food ourselves. Um, over time, however, you know, and, and again, from 2013 to 2017, um, the delivery market changed pretty dramatically. And restaurants found that instead of 5% of their revenue coming from delivery, they found that upwards of 40% were coming from delivery. And so restaurants started to invest a lot more into their delivery product. And equally importantly, more restaurants that were not previously doing delivery started to um, offer delivery. And so what you could get delivered um, from kind of the, the, the aggregate of all the restaurants in your city um, really, really started to change and improve. And so the competitive market evolved pretty dramatically. At the same time, our product also um, had some changes. And when we were starting the business in 2013, we were very focused on product quality and, and kind of product quality alone. And we, we thought that if we could serve the best food, that more people would use our service and that, you know, we would start to drive more profit over time because of increased volumes and increased density. Um, and that, that these have started to really play out positively. However, in the middle of this, uh, us executing on this strategy, the funding markets changed and investors were no longer willing to invest in businesses that grew unprofitably for some future profit, but rather they became much more focused on unit economics. And so the, the very fundamental transaction that, um, that you were kind of going through with your customers had to be profitable in order to receive future financing. And so we had to shift our strategy to start to drive more unit profitability. And that means that we had to kind of shave off parts of our value proposition. So our delivery times went from 15 minutes to 20 minutes, for example. 
And some of the um, ingredient and some of the meals that we were serving on our menu that were lost leaders, like um, really nice cuts of steak, for example, we, we had to cut from the menu and, and uh, focus on menus that could drive more margin. And so, um, yeah, to sum it up, two things changed. The market fundamentally changed. And two, we, we had to make a few changes to our product as, as a result of the funding environment. And both of those things loosened um, the, the signals of product market fit that we were seeing. It's interesting that uh, product market fit is actually a moving target. Uh, I, I can imagine that that's quite a tough decision to take for oneself and also for then the 1,200 employees you had. What did that process look like on the inside for you, sort of coming to the realization that uh, the business maybe doesn't have a future, um, and, and sort of, can, can you walk us through that? What did that look like? Yeah, it, um, that was a very interesting experience. So th there's a few um, phases. There was a phase in the beginning of the business where when I was looking at the, the business and at the competitive market, I started to realize that um, things were shifting and that there was a chance that the business would not continue its growth trajectory. But the, the public still thought we were you know, kind of a, a darling of Silicon Valley investors still thought we were hugely successful. And even our employees still so believed. And, and I would say that kind of cognitive dissonance was one of the more tougher times because, you know, I would kind of like look at the business and think like, am I crazy? Am I, am I missing something that everyone else is seeing? But I'm starting to realize that things are wrong. And so we made a really difficult decision to actually cut down the business and rebuild the product. And we ended up laying off something like 30 to 40% of our staff. Um, and we rebuilt the operations of the business from the ground up to give, a, to give ourselves a better long-term future. And some of our investors didn't agree with the decision and didn't see why we were doing it. And it was a very, you know, that was a pretty tough time to go through. Anytime you're doing a massive layoff and, and kind of a, um, a pivot, even if it's minor, um, it takes a lot of energy and, and it takes a lot um, out of the team. Unfortunately, at the end of the pivot, we had a business that was doing better. And so we were growing and we were, you know, driving more profit, but it still was not growing enough. And so that's when, you know, I was, and, and it took a few months of looking at the a business that was doing that and getting to the, to the point where I could like kind of look in the mirror and remove my ego from, from the decision and start to see that, hey, I don't think this business is going to be successful long-term. And once I came to that realization, shutting down the business actually became the most objectively objective and logical decision to make. Um, and so actually getting to that point was quite difficult. But once I got the realization, then everything after that just became became pretty straightforward and pretty logical. But, you know, we, were, we had two years of runway left and, and very few entrepreneurs kind of proactively shut down their business. So there was a, build, a bit of guilt kind of built into that. My co-founder and I tried to do best by all of the constituents that we had. So, for example, um, we tried to return as much capital as we could um, rather than spending two years burning through the money and burning through our, through our investors' capital unnecessarily. We, we returned it as quickly as we could. Two is when we started to lay off our employees, we spent about two months proactively finding jobs for all of our employees and making sure that they were as taken care of as possible because it wasn't their fault that the business was not working. And so we spent, yeah, I spent two months looking for jobs and our, our employees ended up in really great places. They landed on their feet. I still am, am amazed by some of the things that they've done um, post-spring and, and really proud of that. We had a really exceptional team. So 
and then became much easier, you know, and, and once could kind of make sure that our vendors were taken care of, our investors were taken care of, our employees were taken care of. And it seemed like the logical decision. Then, you know, when you think about it simply and uh, without, you know, try to eliminate your ego, then it becomes a pretty easy decision, actually. There's so much in that that I would love to unpack, like literally like line by line. It's like a how-to guide that I think every entrepreneur would love a copy of. Um, <laughs> what do you think is the, the biggest thing that you did right? And going back, what's one thing that you wish you could change? Yeah, I would say um, the thing that we did right is we, we really tried to solve our customer's problem and tried to take on as much of the pain from the experiences we could. So anytime you're devising a solution to a problem, there's almost always a spectrum between how much of the burden of the solution you're passing on to your end customer, to your vendors, your suppliers, and how much you're taking on yourself. And if you're doing a marketplace, then you're gonna pass on some of the burden of the solution to your demand, some of it to your supply. We try to own as much of it as possible and make it as easy and simple for our users and for everybody in our ecosystem to, to work with us. And it meant, meant that the operations of the business were much more complicated. But the result was that we solved our customers' problems in a way that nothing else that they had found previously solved it. And so we engendered a lot of customer love and loyalty. And, and to this day, you know, this is a business that existed for four years and it failed and it's been gone for three years. And still to this day, the number of people that, that come to me and tell me how much they love Sprig is pretty amazing. And it's, and it's because we tried to do all of the hard work. So I would say, you know, that, that's one thing we tried to do. Well, the other thing I would say, and it kind of goes along the same theme is we try to treat people really well um, across our ecosystem. And that goes from our employees to our investors, to our customers. We, we just tried to do what was best for everybody. And, you know, it, it, it helped us get to the point where even though the business failed, people still look back on it fondly and, and they have respect and, and there's not really any hard feelings. And so I, I think like that general ethos um, is something that I think most more entrepreneurs should, should try to live by. Um, what are things that we could have done better or would have changed? I think like at a very base level, we mistook signs of product market fit for what we thought would be forever product market fit. So, you know, going back to the first answer, the thing that we missed was how much the world was going to change and how much our solution had to solve the problem that was not the, the you know, the business that we built didn't need to solve the problem that we saw in 2013. It needed to solve the problem that we foresaw in 2020. And not enough of the business fast forwarded the world enough. Um, and we probably would have built a different type of business and we would have scaled the company at a slower pace. We probably would have raised less capital and we would have given ourselves more time to see how the world was going to change before we committed to a specific strategy and a specific type of solution. And so I think on some level, we probably um, grew we, because we were growing so fast. We overcommitted to our specific strategy and raised too much capital too early. Um, that prevented us from being able to be nimble enough to change the business as the world started to shift. It's interesting, and I think it takes a you know takes a lot of backbone to move forward with those sorts of decisions. You mentioned that once you removed your ego from the decision making process, it became pretty obvious that shutting down the business is the way to go. Could you walk us through that? Could you speak to that, what exactly you meant by that and how did that look in real time? 
Yeah. I think it's very easy for entrepreneurs to get into a trap because it's easy to start to lose your identity into the business and start thinking of yourself as, as the business. And um, if you're not able to kind of keep a healthy separation, it becomes much more difficult to evaluate um, a company objectively and, and to separate, you know, you're not a better person because the business is doing well and you're not a worse person because the business is not doing as well. And, and having that distinction is really important. Because that's often the case, it becomes very easy for um, for people to fall into the trap of thinking that, hey, there's a, a small change that you can make, or there's one more, you're one more tweak away, or one more product away, one more improvement away from the business turning around, from these signals that you're seeing from them for them to like bounce the other way. And this was not something that I was able to, to kind of get to just because I thought about it, it was, it was going through this process for probably a year of realizing the business was, was not going in the right direction, starting to try to devise product improvements that we could do um, and, and devising a pivot. And, and the whole time thinking, hey, if, if this one thing changes, then that'll cascade and, and the whole business will start doing better. And then, you know, it's really easy to fall into that trap. And, and for me personally, after going through, um, you know, kind of the rinse and repeat of like, oh, we made that change and the result wasn't as good as we wanted it to be or as good as we predicted it to be. In fact, some other, you know, it's a game of a whack-a-mole. You hit one and then boom, you have a leak somewhere else in the dam. And, and you know, you're, you kind of get stuck in, you kind of get stuck in that, um, that feedback loop. Um, so after going through that for, for a number of months, um, and, you know, I had a co-founder of this business that we were, we were very close and we had a lot of trust and, and going through that experience together, I think we were helped, we helped each other get to the point where we could start to look at the business a little bit more clearly, um, and, you know, start to see some of the limitations that, um, you know, on, on, on some level, I think the early success blinded us from, or made it more difficult for us to accept later that, um, oh, wait, things are not as successful as they, they were, you know, and, and the path we're on is not leading to the place we thought it was leading us to. I think often being an entrepreneur is part of an entrepreneur's identity, right? And that's probably where the tricky bit lies that, as you mentioned, you know, the business doesn't work, so I'm, I'm a lesser person. Uh, would you therefore say that entrepreneurs should not make entrepreneurship part of their identity or is it just taking your ego out in certain situations to have a clear head and take the right decision? I would say, so I think there's a distinction there. I think being an entrepreneur can certainly be part of someone's identity, but I think that that is a series of, of, you know, to me, being an entrepreneur means a series of things about your value system, about what you, uh, how you act in the world, your behaviors, your, your, you know, your risk tolerance, things like that. And I think, but I think there's a distinction there between being an entrepreneur and being the business that you are building. And I think there, that separation is really important. You are not your company. Your company is a, a something that you're building, um, but you are your own thing. Interesting. Yeah. And before we move on, and obviously we're keen to talk about Berlin as well and what you're doing at the moment, maybe one last question about Sprig. Um, you had to communicate to your investors, to 1,200 employees, and obviously some other stakeholders that you're closing down the business. How did you, how did you approach this and what did you learn from that experience? What I learned is that you should treat people like adults and be as honest and transparent as possible. And you don't need to sugarcoat things. If you, if you surround yourself with good people, they understand and you present them with the facts, with, 
you know, your analysis of the situation, that's usually good enough, especially if you've done the hard work of going into it and thinking about and prioritizing um, people going into your decision making. If, if you have people's best interests in mind, you're better off being more transparent and letting more people into your inner circle than possible. Um, what was interesting here is that actually our employees and our investors all took the news very differently. You know, so for our employees, they were in, they're in the grind with you day to day. They're, they're seeing the numbers. They're, they're putting in the work. They, you know, they start to have a sense of things, you know, much, much more than you think they might. Um, people people kind of know what's going on. So I don't think anything was a major surprise for, for most of our employees who had, um, you know, at least access to, to more of the information. Um, and so I think, you know, doing things well for our employees, like giving them great severance packages, helping them find, you know, their next jobs and, and really being there and, and being supportive of whatever is going to come next, that helped us make that transition for our employees as seamless as possible um, and made that conversation much easier. For our investors, what was interesting is, you know, a lot of our investors actually did not want the capital back that we were offering. And in fact, a lot of our investors asked us to keep the money and to start a new business with it. And, you know, there, there's things about the, the like incentives uh, built into venture capital that, that are probably driving this. Um, but it became, you know, probably a bigger negotiation with our investors than our employees. And, and they were, um, yeah, it, it became, it actually became hard to give our money back at, at a certain point. And, and uh, okay. But, uh, but it was interesting, you know, and, and on some level, I, I took that as a compliment, like they had enough faith in us that, um, and faith in me that they, they wanted us to re to build something new and, and to, to kind of keep the money at play. But, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting kind of, uh, you know, interactions at play when it comes to, uh, VC and, and entrepreneurs. So now that you're uh, here in Berlin, what exactly are you working on? Yeah, on that note, I am. I'm actually now uh, investing. And so when I when I first moved to Berlin, I spent about a year and a half advising um, founders, and um, I would work with kind of startups and founders across Europe, helping them, especially in the early stages, helping them think through things like their business strategy, their fundraising strategy, um, product, hiring, kind of being almost like an unofficial board member or co-founder on some level, and, and really helping them think through some of the bigger, hairy uh, topics of entrepreneurship, because I had been through a lot of it. Um, and I and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Um, and especially businesses that were working within the broader food ecosystem. Um, I just think that so much needs to change within food. And, and I wanted to figure out a way to continue to do that and have that kind of extended impact um, with whatever I did next. Um, and about three to three, four, five months ago, um, together with the Balson family, uh, you know, a family that owns some of the most iconic confectionery and sweet snacks brands in um, Germany, we decided to start a early stage venture fund um, where we are working with founders who are building um, technologies that can impact the food system and the climate and, and kind of health of, of people um, and investing, you know, in the very early stages, so pre-seed and seed stage, across, mostly across the U.S. and Europe, um, and working with, yeah, talented founders and helping them build, um, hopefully, category-defining and transformative businesses that can have really meaningful impacts. What excites you about the future of food at the moment? 
a lot, a lot, a lot of things excite me about um, about the future. And and I think on a very fundamental level, the food system and I, I kind of pair this together with the climate. It is probably um, maybe the single biggest problem that humanity needs to solve. Um, I think at a very base level, if you think about, we need to develop a structure that allows us to feed humans in 50 years. Like if we continue down the current path, we're not going to be able to do something as simple as that. And so on a very base level, this is like a massive problem that humans need to solve um, just so we can survive. Then if you go a little bit deeper, you know, there, there's a lot in the food system and in the climate that, that can change to allow us to live healthier lives, to have more fulfilling lives, to have more power and transparency over, over the way we live and, and uh, yeah, empower people to live better lives. So I think the, the you know, the broader food system uh, and industry is an industry that's fairly archaic. A lot of it has not evolved in, you know, decades, you know, if not centuries. And there's a lot of kind of like weight that's been holding the entire industry down. And, and now we're getting to the point where technologies can come in and solve things that did not seem solvable in the past. And there's just so much massive room um, to make a really meaningful impact. And, and it's something that people coming from the food industry are not going to be able to solve alone. It's something that people coming from the technology industry are not going to be solve alone, be able to solve alone. And, and it's really going to take um, a lot of work across um, these, you know, kind of two fairly disparate uh, worlds working together to, to create a, to create a solution that um, for me is quite exciting. And so I'm, I'm uh, kind of, I'm thrilled to be, to be part of the, the story. Definitely a lot to look forward to. And I guess one thing's for sure is that we will always need to eat. So there will always be innovation in the food industry. Before we finish for today, do you have a final piece of communications advice? Yeah, I would say learning how to write in the modern era is one of the most important skills that you can develop. And luckily, it's not something that you need to go to school to really learn. And I think the written word learning to communicate your ideas more concisely um, and doing it in a way that, you know, is um, in a way that gets, gets your meaning across and, and gets people inspired by the things that you're saying is probably, I would say, yeah, one of the most underappreciated skills of leadership and management. Um, and it just, you learn a lot of it by practice, by, by reading really excellent writers and by, by kind of writing and publishing and putting yourself out there. Um, and so, yeah, the main takeaway is, is uh, communicate often, write down things, publish it, and uh, I think it can go a long way in, in helping you uh, develop your career. Amen to that. I, I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Neeraj. And for everyone who's interested, my new book is out, Unignorable. You can get it on Amazon or on oliverowls.com. Neeraj, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's really interesting. And hopefully you can come back one day and talk a little bit more uh, about your experiences in Europe. We're quite focused on, on Silicon Valley and uh, your, your ventures there. But it was so interesting that uh, I think everyone can take a few nuggets um, away from that. So for instance, product market fit being a moving target. Sometimes you have to take your ego out of the decision and maybe do the unexpected closing down rather than pivoting uh, and how to communi communicate such a decision to 1,200 people. So thank you so much. Thank you, Oliver and Lena. It's great, great to really enjoy the conversation.